Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This is the first weekly show of the year, um, so it's nice to get back into the swing of things. This show features Sophie Jarvis, who is uh, Head of Public Affairs at the Adam Smith Institute, um, which I'm sure many of you have heard of before, if you're familiar with uh, Adam Smith. And his legacy, you can broadly guess where their politics are. But as we talk about in the interview, they are slightly more rebellious uh, and provocative, perhaps uh, more than uh, Smith himself. Um, but it's a wonderful conversation and um, always refreshing to talk to people from different parts of the political spectrum to uh, think about things. We don't really talk about libertarianism much uh, in British politics. So it's good to have it on the podcast and good to talk about some of the work the think tank is doing and some of the surprising angles they might have on things. I won't ruin any of that, Um, but it's a wonderful discussion. Uh, You may have seen Sophie on uh, various TV uh, outlets and and heard her on the radio, Um, so it was a pleasure to have her on the podcast. By pure chance, I asked her to come on, and then the following day we were both on Five Live together, so um, I think it's always nice to have met the person uh, before doing the interview, Uh, so that was um, a a nice coincidence. Um, So, I'm on tour, uh, first and foremost. The tour starts very, very soon on Monday the 28th of January, which is very soon. That's at the Other Palace. Tickets for that are, are selling very well, so there's only a few left, uh, I'm delighted to say. And then goes to various other places. On the 1st of February, the Camberley Theatre. On the 2nd of February, the Gloucester Guildhall. On the 3rd of February at Salford Quays, the Lowry, just on the outskirts of Manchester. Uh, that has already sold out. Uh, and the Hazlitt Theatre in Maidstone. On the 9th of February, Leicester. I think uh, so far the only East Midlands date uh, on the tour. The Sioux Townsend Theatre on the 15th of Feb. Oh, sorry, these are February, not January. I'm a fool. Camberley, Gloucester, Salford, Maidstone and Leicester are all February. Northallerton on the 18th. Darlington on the 19th. Barnard Castle on the 20th. Hexham on the 21st. A lot of time in the northeast. Um, Stourbridge on the 1st of March Stafford on the 8th of March basically go to loads of places including uh, Glasgow, Newcastle and uh, Edinburgh uh, all later in the tour tickets for all of those mattford.com slash live um, and, and some of them are, are almost sold out so do get your tickets quick uh, and come and see me I'm doing a various I keep adding shows um, which is very exciting in London so I'm doing two more nights at the South Bank Centre in March and I'm doing two nights at the other palace at one very soon on the 28th of January and um, one on the 19th of March as well and some more to be announced I think um, so keep uh, check on my Twitter feed at Matt Ford and um, through the website mattford.com slash live for now I will leave you with the uh, the conversation between myself and from the Adam Smith Institute Sophie Jarvis I'm joined by Sophie Jarvis Head of Public Affairs at the Adam Smith Institute Sophie welcome to the show hello so firstly, at the Adam Smith Institute, yes. listeners may be familiar with the great uh, thinker and writer Adam Smith, Yes, uh, the godfather of capitalism yes. uh, and Woo! other things. Um, what, does, what does the Adam Smith Institute do? What do we do? Okay, so we're basically a bunch of nerds yeah. that sit around in a very small office in Westminster. Um, and first of all, so we, ha- we have the bunch of nerds that sort of react to uh, the news and react to what politicians are doing. So we sort of, they're the sort of comsy research guys. Um, so when Sadiq Khan recently came out with the, the great idea of rent caps. Yes. So as soon as that happens, we sort of, you know, go into the gun cabinet and like, right, put out comments. And it's sort of, so that's, quite, that's, that's the sort of, that's the fun bit. Um, but basically, over the, over the sort of year, we look at various different sort of policy streams. So this year, we're sort of looking at future stuff. We're looking at productivity, um, the nanny state. So some of it's very planned um, in terms of our research. Then we sort of put that research out. We talk to MPs. We talk to the media about it. And then some of it is very reactionary. And it's sort of as it happens in the news. And how much of it <clears throat> is it is it about being custodians of the legacy of Adam Smith? Uh, we do occasionally, we do occasionally criticise him, actually. Um, so, so not to get too much into detail, but he was always quite wary of the power of the banks. He always said they're the ones that you've got to regulate quite, quite strongly. Um, and I, and because he said they have the they have the capacity to be quite greedy. And I personally think uh, he, he was right on that. But we had a big old debate in the office the other day, uh, and all the boys are sort of saying no, 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 no. But but Brexit's another one. Like that's been that's something that's quite interesting because that's been sort of thrown into the mix and Adam Smith never wrote about Brexit yes. but but he did write about free trade 
So that's the Brexit thing is quite interesting because we haven't taken an official line on it because it's not a Remain issue and it's not a Brexit issue. It's like it's sort of our philosophy doesn't really fit into it. So that that's quite an interesting one that people are always quite confused about. Because I suppose you could cut it both ways on free trade. Yeah. Exactly. So, so the the sort of ad. So, I'm personally of the opinion that if I wouldn't, I voted to leave, so we could uh, do, sort of do more free trade with other countries. And I did. I don't like the idea. I think the EU is very protectionist. Um, whereas the sort of Remainers in the office, because we are split right down the middle, they sort of said, no, 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 we're much better off in. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you have the free movement of labour um, as well, which is a sort of big thing. People always get confused with us because when when I sort of tell my friends, oh, I work for a right wing think tank. And then I sort of say, oh, yeah, but we're really pro-immigration and we want to legalise drugs. They get very confused. But to me, that, does, that doesn't seem inconsistent with sort of low taxes and sort of independence. So, No, I suppose <coughs> it's not inconsistent with capitalism. It might be inconsistent with conservatism, which mm. is a slightly different strand mm. to uh, Tory party thinking. And yes. just in terms of, I mean, I suppose, it, just to, um, on, the, on the thought of Adam Smith and the regulation of the banks, I suppose if you're working for the Adam Smith Institute, you have to agree with him on, on the things that he did write about, didn't he? Otherwise, otherwise you're disagreeing. Well, shouldn't the um, point of the Institute be to, to uphold the word of the Lord? I think, I think broadly we do, but I, I, think, I think we just have sort of, you know, very, very little things that we sort of disagree with him on. Yeah, I mean, if you didn't believe in free trade and you worked with Adam Smith, I mean, I don't think you'd get, you wouldn't get past our <laughs> no. founders, basically. Yeah. Um, I actually came to the Adam Smith Institute. I don't know, I, hope my, I don't know if my founders are going to listen to this, but I didn't really know what it was. Yeah. I'd heard of it, um, but I actually sort of came through it via the back door because uh, a think tank called the Entrepreneurs Network used to sort of sit in the same office. Uh, I worked in the city, long story short, ended up at the Entrepreneurs Network. And he said, oh, yeah, we sort of sit within the Adam Smith Institute. And I'm like, oh, I kind of heard of that, aren't they? Those sort of right wing guys on TV. Anyway, sat in the office and I sort of sat in the office for about a year working for the other think tanks or listening to the Adam Smith Institute ideas. And as they sort of, by osmosis, they sort of filled into me. I said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I do do think that. Oh, I think that too. So it's actually (laughs) quite quite lucky that I sort of agreed with everything and then I eventually moved over full time to the Adam Smith Institute. Because um, the Adam Smith Institute highly influential mm. in, in the Thatcher era. Yes. But in recent you know policy exchange is probably the big one now Centre for Social uh, for Centre for Policy Studies sorry uh, it, it, in terms of the Adam Smith Institute and its, and its place in the modern think tank world mm. is there a sense that you're trying to regain ground or that you're trying to become bigger or are you happy with your place in the marketplace I mean uh, do you even think about yourselves in that in that sort of way? Um, I I do. Um, so basically, uh, so when we if we sort of if, if we go way back to the sort of early Thatcher years, um, the um, Madsen Peary and Eamon Butler, who were the founders, they're quite uh, mischievous. So one of the first sort of thick big things they did as a think tank is uh, they got a, they sort of um, clocked uh, you know wrote down all the quangos that were around, and they got to three thousand uh, and sixty eight. And they thought, this is too many. So as a sort of PR stunt, they uh, wrote them all down on a piece of paper, which was sort of 12 A4 sheets by the end, by the time they'd written them all down. Um, And they sort of walked around Parliament with them and gave them to all the or the press team and that got so much coverage and everyone was like that sort of like landed us on the map um so i I think so something that appealed to me about the adam smith institute is they are quite mischievous and that sort of i think that story sort of basically epitomizes what they're like so for um so for all of the thatcher years and the major years we were sort of very influential and very sort of up there um and then I think basically over the sort of sort of 15 years post that so sort of maybe about 2000 to uh, 2015. I think it was very sort of uh, policy based, and we were sort of quite interested uh, in being the sort of we were happy at being the fringe think tank, and we were happy at sort of coming out with the best ideas that normally get implemented sort of 15 years later on. But when you when we come out with them, everyone thinks we're lunatics, and then it sort of becomes policy. Okay, <laughs> that, well, that's, that's, that's normally what happens. Um, but since um, since I started there, I think um, because I, I'm not a sort of re- research isn't my sort of first thing. I'm not the biggest nerd in the world. I like people. I thought right. Well, if we're if we're a think tank, I, I always think we should be a sort of do tank, and we should actually sort of implement the policy that we're coming up with. Because there's no point sitting in an office and and you know thinking that we're the cleverest think tank out there. If you're not actually telling anyone that can implement the policy, you know how to do it. Um, 
So that's what I'm sort of basically doing at the moment is sort of getting the ideas, sort of simplifying them down so you can go and talk to people about them, whether they be MPs or servants, special advisors, because um, I, I, th- I think for me that's the most important bit. So, so as someone said to me the other day, they said, you're the tank in think tank, aren't you, Sophie? <laughs> OK, but well, I think, that's good. But I, but I think actually not being a think tank person... Um, helps. But actually helps. But you need, I think you need both. And I think that's what the other think tanks do so well is that not everyone there is a sort of, you know, entirely focused on the research and not on the sort of outward looking thing and how people perceive you. Well, that's that's the key question. So how are you perceived, do you think, by firstly, senior government advisors and ministers? Um, I think I think well, so. I actually did a massive. So when I started, I did a SWOT analysis on the ASI because I and I just I just sort of went to ministers, journalists. And I said, come on, really tell me what you think of us. What, what do you think of us? And I got aloof, I got fringe, I got mad, I got weird, um, I, I got a lot of a lot of things. Yeah. So I thought, right, okay. So and then you have to sort of work back and go, right, how do you change this? So we have... Um, That's, but do you want to change that? Yes. Okay. Because no one listens to you if they think you're weird or they think yeah. you're fringe. So you have to be relevant. So that's why one of the policy streams this year that we're doing is called Into the Future. And we're focusing on the future of tech, the future of food, the future of the internet. And I think that's really important because lots of sort of think tanks focus on nationalisation and all, and all the sort of like old arguments that, you know, we've been arguing over for years. But I thought, right, let's have one uh, policy stream about the future. Um, so, yeah, so that's that's what we're focusing on. So in terms of, I mean, obviously different people react differently to different think tanks. So I can't imagine there are too many Labour MPs that are, that are hugely ah. receptive to your work. Yeah, oh, uh, well, well, so this, there'll this be is, some. There, there are some. So on, so on certain things like uh, the Green Belt, um, we've got Siobhan McDonough, who's a Labour MP in London, and she's very pro Mitch us. Morden, is that right? Yes, that's great. Um, and she's very pro us because we're, we're quite keen on uh, sort of reassessing the green belt. Um, so I, th- I think about sort of uh, if we built on about um, 3% of it, you could actually build 1 million new homes. Um, so there's, there's lots of stuff like that which you could do. And also reforming the planning laws as well. So she's on side. With the drug stuff, we've got all the Lib Dems. They're very keen on that. Um, also, the, <laughs> the nanny state uh, Tories at the moment want to impose calorie counts on menus. And we did a report basically saying... It's disastrous if you've got any sort of eating disorder because you're constantly reminded when you go out for dinner how much, how many calories in this. So we've got all the Lib Dems on board for that as well. In terms of the government then, in terms of mm. Theresa May, what, what, is she receptive to you or are people receptive to the SI? Um, oh, that's a good question. <laughs> Um, I think on I think on some things, but I think the the main thing I find about um, Theresa May's leadership is the is the nanny state stuff, and that they seem uh, so whether that's energy price caps or this obesity strategy that they keep banging on about, they seem very interested in getting involved in people's life. And I have to say. Um, I think the ASI is a bit of a relic, and we are known for being mad. But I think people <laughs> do. Although I think I was told to say eccentric, not mad. But anyway, um, <laughs> that's basically the same thing. Um, and but I think I do find what is interesting is that I, I think the the old conservatives and even the new ones they they know that you know we've we've been around for a long time. And I actually think when you talk to them about the nanny state stuff, when you actually say to them, "Look, you're a conservative. Why are you?" Why are you getting involved in people's lives and why are you trying to take that freedom away? I think they I think some of them feel quite guilty when you talk to them and they've got that look of saying, Oh yeah, that yeah, that is that is what we're supposed to stand for. And they're, and they're not standing for that at the moment. So so for me the biggest gripe I have with the Conservatives is the is definitely the anti immigration stuff. I mean that's just mad. You look at any report and immigration immigrants are of net benefit. Um and it and it's the nanny state stuff in terms of, oh let's do energy price caps, let's have a sugar tax, let's get involved. I mean, Margaret Thatcher would have laughed at the idea of a sugar tax or, or, you know, or any sort of calorie counts on menus. In terms of then the philosophy, obviously you take Adam Smith as a sort of base leader for, for, mm. for, your, for your thinking. It used to be described as a libertarian think tank, the ASI. Mm. Now it describes itself as neoliberal. We changed. Um, we, we, we changed because the libertarian movement, the way I sort of, they're, they're a bit, they're sort of the cowboys. Of our of our gang, so there's a, the libertarians and the neoliberals are sort of in the same same gang, but the libertarians think the neoliberals are sort of wet; they're a bit soft, yeah. um, and that's because the libertarians are sort of like yeehaw, no taxes, like let's just sort of ride with that. People, if people are born in a uh, if people are born in a sort of poor family, you sort of deal with it. Um, whereas neoliberals are more sort of like right, okay, um, liberalism is really good for creating wealth. 
but it's not very good at um, dis- redistributing it. And the government may have a role in redistributing it. Um, not everyone can be bought in the same way that, you know, um, someone is born into a rich family. You know, so- someone can't help it if they were born in a, you know, the 1800s where you had really poor living standards for most people. Um, so I think basically the neoliberals are a bit more sort of sensible. Um, and I think a lot of the... Uh, the sort of cowboy uh, aloofness that the, some of the MPs are, are on my sort of feedback thing that I got, it comes from the libertarian thing. So we we're always very keen to move over to the to the neoliberal side because I, I think they all they were just a bit more rational. And if something, I mean, our our sort of main ideas of you know the government should not be involved in stuff, you know, free enterprise, free trade. But if we're given information that says otherwise, then we we do back down. So there is a kind of subtle shift in the philosophy of the of, of the of the of the group, really, of, of the organisation. It's nice to yeah. talk to someone who actually is a neoliberal and identifies as one, because neoliberal well, it, now is a sort of term of abuse for anyone who's not Jeremy Corbyn. Exactly, and and to me, I I find that really bizarre because I think I think neoliberal in, in the way that most people use it is basically um, your you sort of believe in reason, uh, you believe in progress, you believe in science, you believe in evidence. Um, I'd say the Industrial Revolution is probably one of the most important events in our in, in the history of mankind, and I think that is an inherently uh, that is the embodiment of neoliberalism, free enterprise, um, free trade, reason. So for people to criticise it, and what always makes me laugh is the people that the the, the, progress, the people that call themselves progressives are the people that hate progress the most. <laughs> But well, I, I do find it bizarre that they, they the, the left or whatever, the cornea, it is a term of abuse um, because it's been responsible for getting millions out of poverty. Every year, the, the world is getting better. Everything is getting better. Um, you know, more than 90% of the world now that are under 25 can uh, illiterate. And, and and that was that was not the case 100 years ago. I mean, it's it, it's an amazing force. Um of of you know of, of wealth and sort of creating wealth and making everything better. So it does seem bizarre that the left want to they uphold these sort of values that um, have got Venezuela into the complete and utter mess that it's in now. I mean, Venezuela have uh, I think it's cr- in creeping up to more refugees than Syria for God's sake, um, and our the leader uh, the leader of the opposition stood there and said about a few years ago, oh, no, you know, this is the kind of world we want, that that's a better world. And I, and I find that very alarming. But the thing is that the I think the socialism, communism thing is sexier because it's sexy to sort of say, uh, you know, you want fair stuff, you want, I don't know, whatever else they, whatever else they say. Um, and I think the conservatives or the right are always seen as, as conservatives who you know want to take money away from people, or you know, a mean and a nasty and a cold. So I think the key for the conservatives is they've got to basically sex up the right again, and because how, at the moment the left is a lot sexier. But is it? But I, I suppose we're living in a world of Brexit, of Trump, where the right is sort of on the march, where you've got a conservative government. Sorry, well, I th- so I think well, I think Trump. And I think the sort of small C conservatives are part of the same pot. The sort of like, I don't know, anti-abortion, anti-immigration, sort of slightly populist yeah. um, sense. I think that's one thing. But what I'm talking about is a sort of basically like a Thatcher revival. But you can't you can't call it that because she's a you know people people despise her. But I'm talking about a sort of a liberal. Uh, utopia of uh, legalizing drug, drugs, not because people should have the right to. Um, to smoke weed or, or do cocaine or whatever, but because it's actually safer and, and better for people, um, a world with um, open borders, um, stuff you know, and hardly any regulation around sort of future technology, so we can really sort of expand lab-grown meat. Um, let's have more of that. That that that's that's the kind of world I want, and I think, and it, Christopher Hitchens actually says when. Um, when he when he first met Thatcher, there's quite a funny a- anecdote about him and her. They met they met at party conference, um, and he'd sort of written before in the New Statesman that she he found her really really sexy. Anyway, so he sort of goes up to her, and he's they get into a bit of an argument about Rhodesia. Anyway, and he sort of he he sort of says, oh, you know, she was really good at arguing, and she was the leader of the opposition. So I sort of I sort of bowed down. Um, sorry, she was the leader of the party. So he 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 sort of bowed down, and she sort of says to him, "You bow lower." Christopher and he bowed lower and then she said turn around and he turned around and then she spanked him <laughs> on the bottom with a piece of paper and then he sort of turned around to be like oh my god Margaret Thatcher just spanked me wow. and she turned around and said you naughty boy anyway the point is that he 
he at that he said at that moment I realised the right had won and the left had lost because they had a sexy leader and their idea of uh, you know of liberalism and freedom uh, was sexier than what the left were offering and I basically think that the right have to do that again but but only a bit of the right not the sort of anti-immigration anti-abortion anti-gay not that crowd the sort of liberal side and I think that's what we have to do again because I think I think it is sexy I think as a as a neoliberal I think you're you're naturally a sort of rebel you're you're a libertine and I think that that's sexy particularly to young people um, that idea of you know what well, I'm independent I, I can I can you know reap my own benefits I can sort myself out yeah. don't get involved in my life I'm a sort of independent teenager I think that's a that's a very good line um, and this sort of what the left offer is what um, we're going to give you so much state aid so you so you stay in your in your class and you can't move up well that's how some people would say it. I mean people would also say that uh, public investment in, in in education in particular allows people to get out of their but social that, class. That's. I think that's very different, though, to what I think. Um, what I think the left are offering, particularly uh, Jeremy Corbyn, are offering at the moment in terms of their idea of rent control. That yeah, but, 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 well, uh, just on education in terms oh, of it, uh, 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 in terms of a ladder out uh, mm. uh, of, uh, and in, in, if if people indeed do want a ladder out uh, of their uh, of their position. There are shades of the left, aren't there? So not everyone mm. on the left is Jeremy Corbyn or Venezuela. No. You know, the centre-left, the, the sort of Blair right-wing uh, of politics that I belong to, mm. isn't heavy state at all. It, it uses the, the mechanisms of the state to correct injustices that the market would never address. So where does the mm. Adam Smith Institute stand on things like um, state education? I mean, does it think it should be privatised? Um, I think our line is always with any sort of industry is that you just have to look at the outcomes. So if you if we privatised every school um, in the UK, and I, I think uh, that, uh, we don't really touch on education, but I think our line in education is that actually if you did have all privately run schools, but to a majority of people in the UK, you give them vouchers. So basically... Um, People still don't have to actually pay out of their own pockets for education, but you create a market, so you create competition. I think that that's their sort of ideal in terms of running a school. Um, there is also some evidence uh, that I read to suggest that it doesn't schooling actually doesn't really make that much of a difference in your life. Um, but oh, really? But, but I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not actually of that of, of that sort of mindset. Um, I, th- I think what is fair about un- unfair about the UK at the moment, and uh, this is just my personal thinking, is that I think the um, is I think it is unfair to have private schools uh, and state schools and grammar schools. Um, so I think if you and, and I think grammar schools are probably as long as you have private schools, I think grammar schools are probably good to have. I think we should have more of them. So you don't just get um, the sort of because what happens at the moment because we have so few grammar schools is that the areas that they're in become very, very um, densely populated with sort of rich people because they all go there and house prices go up and no poor kid can attend basically because there's and so I think if we had more I think they are a great um, sort of social leveler and I'm a very big fan of equality opportunity and that's why the education funding for, for me like you, I don't know put as much money as is needed into that because you have to give people the the same um, starting point and then from there and I think this is maybe where some of the left deviate from some of the right is that from there you know there, there are kids that work really hard at school uh, and and throughout life and there are some that don't and it should always be that the ones that work harder do, you know, have more stuff. But is it, is but it those that work harder or those that are more talented? Uh, I mean, I think it, I think it's a combination of both. But that's that's what I was saying about the the sort of neoliberalism accounting for the fact that it, it's good at creating wealth, but it's not necessarily good at redistributing it. Um, but I, I think, yeah, I think the, the key thing is you start you start from a level playing field. Um, I mean, part of the problem I have is is that uh, by no means am I a Corbyn fan, mm. um, and I would I would far rather live under capitalism than than, than communism. Um, but even under capitalism, huge inequalities exist, and even in Britain in 2019, for all the huge progress in life expectancy and education, all the other wonderful ways in which life is definitely better now than it was for my grandparents. Mm. Um, we could still do more to level the playing field to create equality of opportunity, but and left to its well, own devices, the market simply would never do that. But then you've but you've confused two things. You started with inequality, and then you said inequality of opportunity. So inequality, uh, in if I'm being completely honest, I'm not really that fussed about. But it's about the extent but, of inequality. 
but why why does that matter as long as the as long as the 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 bottom half of society are moving up why does the why does the gap in the middle matter well it's about what is tolerable isn't it so it's about when you have the rise in rough sleeping that we've had in britain mm-hmm. that i would say that that proves the gap is too wide but but that's but that's that's you're then talking about the sort of bottom half and you're talking about them not moving up and that's evidence that they're not moving up if we have an increase in homelessness yeah. so that's so i care about that but what what i what i think um i mean you had the oxfam report that came out recently that sort of bashed billionaires and said the world's getting so much worse and i find that some some people on the left are always more interested in criticizing the wealthy and the top than they are about bringing the bottom up and i know that's not what you're that's saying that's what i'm saying i'm talking about rough sleepers i'm talking about the the opposite well okay so so for example so with that um i one of our solutions to that is to just simply to build more houses like that there's a reason why um you know why people are why people are going homeless also um if you if you um decriminalized heroin then um these people could sort of have that are on the streets could have sort of safe injecting places a lot of the reasons why not everyone on the street has a heroin sorry no 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 but a lot of the people uh, a lot of the reasons why people are on the streets is that they there are beds in homeless shelters but they can't actually get in because they are um the heroin addicts so if you if you decriminalized it you could sort of move uh, move um some of them some of them in there even without um, rough sleeping, the extent of inequality should trouble people, shouldn't it? Why? Because if you're because part of the problem you have when you have huge inequality is there is talent going unused, and an economy is therefore not as productive or as efficient as it could be. Why? Well, because people aren't being given the opportunities to to unlock their natural ability. I don't. Well, I think you you have two inequalities. You have inequality of income, and then you have inequality in wealth. So, which one are you talking about? Both. Talking about people growing up in areas where mm-hmm. they do not have access to the services that allow them to to unlock their talent, and also a, a, a system that disproportionately allows untalented people of wealth to yeah. get on in life. Well, th- there are plenty of thick yeah. people who go oh, to very no, no. good schools who end up running the country. I, mean, I I I completely agree with you, um, but I don't. That's a problem, isn't it? That, no, that for is a functioning economy and society. No, that is a problem, but I don't think that is. Uh, to me, that's not inequality. Inequality in income or inequality in wealth is 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 purely the the difference between the rich and the poor, um, and and the two sections in society. So I think what you what you're sort of talking about is unfairness, which I think which always goes on. So I think okay, how do you sort of how do you create that sort of equal playing field? Uh, we we have the NHS. I I personally would rearrange it slightly differently but you know everyone has way? everyone has a good a- good access to healthcare in this country. Um, when you say rearrange so, it slightly differently what do you mean? Well I'd probably look I'd probably look at other systems that we have in Europe. Um so if we look at it purely on a on a sort of uh if we take away the sort of the sacred cowness of the NHS and you just sort of put you put that the emotion aside and you actually look at what um some research suggests is that compared to European countries we're we're really quite bad at keeping people alive on the NHS um and actually you'd be a lot better off in other European countries and we're not talking we're not talking about America here okay this is, this is Europe you'd actually be a lot uh, more likely to live if you've got cancer and you were being treated in European countries which ones uh the Netherlands uh Belgium uh, uh, I think France and Germany, and then you look at the cost. Okay, um, and I th- in those countries you have to pay per capita slightly more, um, but but it's it's not it's not that much more. And you have it's still free at the point of access. And for those who are really poor in society, it's it's entirely free. And it's basically but free, it's, what's the difference between free at the point of access and, and entirely free? Um, so I think the free at the point of access is you go into any and you sort of have to get you have to get seen immediately, um, and then it's sort of like ongoing treatments that for the, those that are really poor in society that you'd that they would just get for free. But other people Whereas, would have to pay. But other would other people would but it would be through their it would be through an insurance company. So it would be privately run and publicly funded. I think part of the problem whenever you in, but, involve private sector suppliers in in public services. People are naturally mistrustful. Well, I would be naturally um, distrustful of the public sector getting involved in health because they are naturally inefficient. But I do. But I, 
but I do understand. I do, you know, I've been to America. I've seen the way the healthcare system works over there, and I think it's barbaric. I think I actually got escorted out of a hospital in America because, and they said I was a socialist because I screamed at the nurses because they wouldn't just treat someone without sort of seeing their uh, insurance. Someone you knew. Yes, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. I wasn't just loitering around <laughs> hospitals, and I got called a socialist. I thought that's the first, the first time. Um, so I, I do, I do get what people mean, and I understand. I, I get into big arguments with my grandma about this because she's she was a nurse for God knows how many yeah. years, and she's just like, you don't understand. You didn't work in it. Like the NHS is the best thing ever. Um, but all, I just think we we should have a bit of bit more of a discussion about it because if people are complaining that you know their nan or granddad or mum or whatever has died on the NHS because it was useless and they missed their cancer from stage whatever, which, which happened to my granddad, don't complain about it and then say it's the best thing in the world because it's 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 one or the you know pick a side basically. Well, both could be. It could be the best system in the world and still have faults. It could be the it could be the least worst system. But it's but it's not so in the King's study, ah, the King's study and the Commonwealth study, uh, which were two sort of independent studies carried out, not by dirty right wing think tanks, the independent <laughs> studies to, uh, sort of taken out, and not that our research isn't independent. Um, and they said that we that the the NHS was really bad at keeping people alive, um, and in in fact it's it's the worst in Europe. Um, and the, the Guardian commented on this and sort of wrote about it. Now you could say put more funding into it. Um, but it's it's a, I believe it's at the it's got the most funding at the moment that it's ever had, and it's it's still failing. Um, so I it's think a, it's just also in many other ways it's still succeeding, isn't it? It's made huge strides in the way that it looks after people. In what in what ways? In terms of waiting times, in terms of cancer care, heart disease, compared to what it was twenty years ago, things are better in Britain now than they were in sure, nineteen ninety nine. But if you look at other countries and how they're adapting in the NHS, they're doing significantly better. And I think so. So all I'm all I'm saying is, um, I realise that it's political suicide for any party to go for it. So it's probably an unrealistic ask. But can the Department of Health please look into the way that other countries do it that aren't America, and just maybe just talk about it? Even if it was the best system in the world, you should always look to improve everything, and and ideas should always be welcome. You should never feel like you, that we can't go near the NHS as an idea and, and, and challenge yeah, it. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. But. Okay, oh God, okay. No, but. The, you join uh, me in there. No, 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 but I, I think the point is, is that I, I, I'm broadly pro-market uh, and I'm not ideologically against private sector companies delivering some public services when there are capacity issues and things like that. But I just think you have to be really careful when you think about public services as marketplaces because they're not. And market forces aren't always what they need. It can help in some areas, but I think in general, applying areas... business models to, to public services but can then be I, tricky. But, but then I would say, in in things like health that are that are really really important, you you want you want the best healthcare. There, I mean, healthcare is a you know tech and innovation comes into it a lot. The NHS currently have a program where they allow so their procurement process is quite interesting. So they only uh, allow I think it's about sort of seven startups uh, a year that have to go through all the rings and hoops of them um, to sort of take on board their services. And apart from that, a lot of the companies that the NHS uses uh, in the procurement process are sort of massive big uh, you know chunky companies that can take you know have you know massive diseconomies of scale so whereas in other countries it's a lot easier to get in as a startup with the healthcare system and also there's not this they don't have to jump through all the loops of you know are you you know do you, do you really believe in the values of the NHS so I think I think healthcare is actually one of the areas that it would it could do with a lot of innovation and sort of technology which is what the the market is a lot then you know you, you you can create that a lot easier in a sort of freer environment. But I do get your concerns. Like I, as I said, and I've and I've been to Spain in the healthcare system over there, and they tried to keep me in overnight, un, completely unnecessarily. That definitely doesn't happen in the NHS, and you can't help but going in to hospital, and they are really nice. So, but I but I and I think that also you know persuades a lot of people to think oh god don't touch it so do you talk but to many Tory you, I mean I'm guessing it would be mainly Tory MPs that would be receptive to NHS no. reform in the, in the private sense um, this isn't something that the institute really talks to people about no is it because I think you, you should be do you think um or is this a pet project of Sophie Jarvis no I, all I like doing I just like talking about it on the media 
and just sort of just to get people's brains thinking because you don't we look you don't but your you boss know, is going to all... say Sophie shut up with the NHS stuff man we're trying to talk about micro homes <laughs> no I think it's, it's the other way around one of our other, other ones is sort of organ donations so we think that you should sort of um, make kidney donations legal I haven't I haven't quite looked into it yet right. but but it's well, sort of, you it's should sort look of, into it first before a, advocating it surely sort of, I don't know but it's, it's stuff like, like tearing people's but, organs but, out but for me or other people but it but for, but for me I think issues like um if you bolster into a meeting with a minister and go right that NHS you need to privatize the hell out or you go oh let's let's organ donations we're already saying let's legalize cannabis I I think personally from my this is my point of view I don't want to go in there and sort of bolster them with that because it's just like that's just sort of like big picture thinking that maybe I'll mention it or maybe I'll mention it to MPs when we're having a drink or I'll mention it to their researchers when we're having a drink and, and how do they react do they say that's a really good idea oh and come go, on Sophie <laughs> privatise the NHS for God's sake well, some, some, right some of them do actually say look we know that it's no good they said but you know that it's political suicide and, and I, I'm guessing I'm, that's all Tories um yeah um, but, but, but I say to them, I you know, people, pe- I the way I sort of sell it to them is I say, look, people are dying on your on your watch basically because you're not taking a hold of it and you're not saying like, right, we are probably one of the only countries in the world that has this much state intervention in our healthcare system. We're not a socialist country. Why are we doing this? For me, it always seems quite out of kilter with the rest of um, sort of UK politics. Um, I don't have a but, problem with that. I think that kind of, ref- in a way, I think that's in kilter. I think the public are sort of left wing on the NHS, but they're neoliberal on the economy. And I think, I've, in a way, I think we have a, a beautiful mix of uh, policies that, that kind of fit where the country is on different issues. I think, I think people only really hold the NHS dearly is because they think the alternative is America, and that is a that is a. But also, that so many people have used it and had a good, you know, the vast majority of people have a very positive experience of the NHS. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah, I mean, waiting around for eight hours in any, there's something about that you sort of that's, think, oh, yeah, that's rare. Uh, th- but but you when know, you look but, at any patient you know, satisfaction survey, people are very satisfied with the I treatment th- that they get. It's when people assume that other people's treatment is worse. But but I think that's because I think a lot of that to do is with the staff and because it is free and well people it's not free you pay an awful lot of it through your taxes, but people think it's free as well and I think if things are free people sort of then accept the sort of slightly lower quality. I think also, but then I but, think but also, also come on come on from a patient's point of view you go somewhere where you are looked after where you leave healthier. But that happens in like yeah, every know, other country. I know, but they're not. It's not. And they probably the free see you thing. a lot quicker and it's probably a lot better. It's probably a lot better. So it is put, a lot better. So, what about other public services then? What about the police? Would you have any sort of market intervention there? Would you would you would you bring private providers into um, safety and security issues? No. So, in America, I believe they've pri- they've privatized the prisons over there, and that's that sort of led to a lot of problems because uh, obviously the judges are incentivized to send people into the prisons uh, for longer, and that does again our principle would say that you know market forces would win yeah. but if you look at the evidence on that there's so there's so much corruption there and it's because yeah the judges are obviously getting loads of backhanders from the prisoners so that doesn't seem to work so I, th- I think with everything you have to um yeah you just sort of have to look at it um also i think supply side economics also help so you know people are complaining about the high streets you know the high streets are dying yeah. um some people would say right well, why are they dying or people are using amazon let's tax amazon okay um, I would say uh, no. Why don't we just sort of liberalise planning regulations in high streets, so above the shops um, or in uh, where the shops were, just put houses there instead. Make that make it easy to um, turn the sort of commercial buildings into the um, residential and have people there, so you increase footfall. Um, so I, I, I always think that sort of our way of sort of solving things um, is sort of more creative, and it's not as reductive and restrictive. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
perspective. Uh, so in terms of the Institute's future work, um, mm. according to recent tweets, in 2019, we're focusing on three policy streams, yep. rebooting Britain, practical liberalism and how we help the country move into the future. We're no neoliberals and maybe you are too. Um, so just take them slightly out of order. Practical liberalism. What is that? Okay, so this is the this is the sort of um, this is all the this is actually homelessness. So we're going to do a big paper on homelessness about why so many people are homeless um, and how uh, sort of uh, liberal solutions can get us to reducing the amount of homeless people. Um, so for that, we're going to be look at safe spaces for injecting, um, sort of planning regulations, housing uh, housing reform. Um, we're also going to sort of uh, really be keen on enforcing. I think it was a I think it was actually a George. Bush idea um, called housing senior or junior uh, junior um, they were called housing first which basically puts if you're if you've got any sort of drug addiction or alcohol addiction I think at the moment you have to you have to get you you get your house once you've received treatment whereas we're sort of saying no um, sorry you have to be receiving treatment to get the house whereas we're sort of saying no you don't have to be receiving any treatment for it you just get the house straight away and then you're actually much more likely to be on the road to recovery if you've got a sort of stable house and that is your house and that you don't keep being moved um so and practical liberalism is also the sort of nanny state stuff so you know stopping the sort of calorie counts um stopping um uh what other sort of nanny states are they doing uh, the sort of buy one get one free things they want to intervene in any more taxes they want to put on people because we always say that any sort of sin tax like a tax on sugar a tax on chocolate a tax on salt um fat whatever is always it's, it's a tax on the poor because they're the ones that sort of feel it the most. But I suppose this goes and to the fundamental principles of what liberalism is and freedom from and freedom to. Yeah. Is where would you have stood on smoking then and the smoking ban? I think because, so this is interesting, because smoking is so, that smoking is obviously so bad for you and there is no research that says that it's not. Apart I person- from that commission by the tobacco industry. <laughs> Was there? Well, yeah, of course. I mean, in the eighties, there's oh huge god, no, an awkward, awkward, fake, yeah. you know, institutions to peddle this crap. Um, but no, I mean, that's that's obviously really bad for you, and it's probably I probably like the smoking ban in, in is probably a good thing. I think I think I do think that um, individual restaurants should still be allowed. If if, if we were living in Sophie Land, um, they would still be allowed to. If you wanted to smoke in there, you could. If, if but. That's then saying that the the restaurant workers that are working in there have consented to that, and people going in there know that. So that's what they have in a lot of Europe, um, in Portugal um, and in, in Lisbon and Berlin. I've, those two places I've been to, and people smoke inside. But the agreement is that you know that everyone's smoking there, so presumably non-smokers don't go in there. So I think that's fine. So I think it's probably a little bit too strict at the moment. Um, but the thing is with sugar, which is their new sort of oh, they all these signs saying it's the new tobacco or whatever. Um, there was a guy from Public Health England, another quango that should probably be shut down, um, saying that sugar, um, they did the test. So it was on the More or Less podcast with Tim Harford and he sort of really skewered him, this guy from Public Health England. And he said, sorry, just to clarify, you've created the sugar tax. You don't do all this stuff on how bad sugar is, but you don't haven't actually found any evidence that suggests that in adults, because they found it in children, in adults, um, does uh, does sugar lead to weight gain, cardiovascular diseases, uh, any sort of cancers. And he sits there and says no. So my uh, my thing with the sugar issue is that the, ev- the the jury's still out on whether it's bad for you, whether it's really, really bad for you or not. Um, obviously, it's, it's it's not it's not great. No, I don't. It's not doesn't have that many sort of health benefits. But the thing is with smoke, what I think smoking is different to the sugar is that smoking is definitely really bad for you, and it's and like it's it's a good thing that we're not all allowed to smoke in here now, probably. Um, definitely. <laughs> but with the sugar thing, they don't actually know that it's that it's that bad for us yet. And they, that's and what people used to say about England. tobacco. And you know, thirty years ago, people from the Adam Smith Institute would have been arguing against taxing tobacco against. Yeah, but a we pro- but we probably as soon as the evidence came out that it was really oh, but the really evidence bad. Has always been there. That but the, but there's but there isn't evidence. Public Health England are saying said on this podcast that they're not that there is no evidence that sugar leads to weight gain, cardiovascular issues, or cancer. So that's not the same as smoking. It's different, but in terms of public health, does the state not have a responsibility to intervene to prevent businesses from profiteering on on making people unhealthy? Mm. I think it has an. It ha- the state has a role to 
if I'm being generous, to inform people. So it has an it has a um, responsibility to, to tell people, look, um, smoking is really bad for you. Okay, so that's why um, sort of health campaigns like the sort of uh, the drink driving campaigns um, and the sort of anti smoking campaigns they're really good because it's informing you. Um, but they didn't really work. Is the problem? That's why they had to. That's why the ban and that's why increased taxation had to be used. Was because actually they, they weren't as effective as as other instruments. Well, then you have to say if. What what is what actually is the issue? I think if people know, if people are aware that that smoking is really bad for you and that drinking is bad for you and that you probably shouldn't eat that drinking's many. Drinking's not hamsters. as bad. I mean, drink, drinking's fine basically. That, that you should that you shouldn't drink. You know, you shouldn't eat that many hamburgers. Um, How many's okay? I'm asking I, for a mate. I, 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 <laughs> I had a McDonald's last night actually. Um, then, if people know that, and if people want to eat that, what's the problem? Because, it, right, so... And who are you? And I, I, I would tell you an anecdote, one of my... Because I'm, I'm actually friends with a lot of left-wing people. Um, and one of he, I got into a conversation with him the other day about the sugar tax. And he basically, I boiled him down to, yes, I do think I know better than the man on the street. And I think because I earn more and I'm more intelligent, I can drink Coke and other people... And the man on the street who, you know, doesn't have any money shouldn't be able to afford it because he doesn't know better. And that's basically what the... Well, he sounds argue, like a dreadful the, snob, whoever the, that was. The other... The other, the other, the other side of what I, the other people that don't think what I think, I, I think that's what they think. They, they, it boils down to they think they know better than other people. I don't think it is that. I think it's, it's not that at all. I think it's, it's that. Um, businesses will sell you anything if they can sell it. Oh, it's not businesses. Some, people, well, of course, it's not charities selling Coca Cola. And but, these are these are these are highly powerful. Absolutely, <laughs> that's Diet Coke. I mean, I'm, and by the way, I'm not necessarily against Coca-Cola. It's a theoretical discussion. It's not necessarily my point of view. Um, uh, the point is, is is they're not theoretically that businesses will sell you anything, just like the tobacco industry did, just like the alcohol industry does. Uh, and again, I'm not necessarily sort of for or against any of those things, but that in a but if people be- if consumers are being manipulated, they're not being manipulated. Oh, come on! Of course they are. Oh, cigarette advertising. Like any advertising, like the advertising for Max. Exactly, but they or... will sell you something that they know is bad for you. And in a, in a, in a responsible society, it, in a representative okay, so hold on. What's, what's good for you? What's good for you? Kale's good for you. Water's good for you. They like, there's boring. People like naughty stuff and that's fine. But they, but they do have to, what is bad is obviously when the cigarette company said, actually, if you smoke this, you're going to live longer and all that. Obviously, that's, that's false advertising. That's actually killing people. But if people want to, honestly, if people want to sit there and eat... Chocolate and sugar and, and smoke and drink, then then let them. But but they have to know and, and but they have to be informed. And this is maybe where and and something by the way that I do, uh, this is definitely is in the Adam Smith Institute line um, on on obesity. Because um, you know some people care so much about other people's weight. I personally don't think. Well, I I don't understand why people do. But I think a possible solution to that is give give people free gym memberships. If you're really fat. Have a free gym membership. But what sort of gym? What sort of gym are we talking? Are we talking LA Fitness? Are we talking David Lloyd? What sort of level? Um, are probably just like the sort of like pure gyms, better gyms, just a sort of just like not too fancy, so people don't get really annoyed about it, and people don't put on weight, so they can get the gym. That would be counterintuitive. Yeah. Um, but do that, teach people how to cook, invest in that, but don't stop, don't stop people doing what they want. When you know, if you if you speak to, um, I went out a campaigning um for the tories a few few months ago and i spoke to uh, someone who we were campaigning in Dag- dagenham and i spoke to someone on the door and he uh, was a smoker and he lived in a not a not a very nice house clearly didn't have much money and he said your party has ba- basically ruined my life he goes because the one pleasure i had uh, was drinking cider and having my fags outside and, and sitting on my deck chair outside. And he goes, and you've taken that away because you've whacked up the child. He goes, I can't afford it anymore. Uh, and and people never really think about that side of things they when it comes to taxing. Well, they but do. That's, that's always I'm not, a big part of the discussion. But, it's, it, it, but it gets sounded out. So I think you have to always ask with these, some people, and, and so the Public Health England people would view it as killing themselves, and I guess it kind of is, some people enjoy doing that. And if they want to do that, who, who the hell are Public Health England and these quangos that are all overpaid in London? But it's not about, but, but that's not why fair, is it? it but, but that's, it's not about them, is it? This is about, 
this isn't about quangos and London and whatever else. This is about people all around the world who have different philosophies to yours and, and they've every right to ask the theoretical questions about what sort of society do we want to live in? Oh, of course. What role does the, but, but they're d- dictating, they're no, dictating other people's <laughs> behaviours. People, but people are more than... Well, to some extent, yes. But you force but this people... isn't like but to, to, to sort of frame it as London-based quangos. That's not the point. You're sort of missing the point. Is that some people sit at home uh, in Nottingham, in Leeds, in Dar- uh, whether they're Labour, Tory, Lib Dem, SNP, or whatever, and sometimes just think, how could society be better? How could we be healthier? Where is the line between, between state and and an individual? And that is that is a sort of constant, ongoing thing. Certainly not the sole preserve of London-based quangos. This is just about politics and different people's ideas. Okay, yeah, I I, w- I would agree. If so, and some people sit there and think that, so maybe, um, yeah, so they, they can they can sort of sit there and think that. But I don't know if I don't know if they would. I I just always think you should try and you should give people choice and you yes. should give people options. Um, and sure, some people would some people would say that um, that the you know Coca Cola doing the the sort of hard advertising they do people don't actually have a choice and that they can't sort of they they can't make a choice for themselves sure there, there, there's an argument in that but all I'm saying is that I think if you and I, I haven't I don't I don't know the research on this I don't know if you do but if you actually asked people how much do you really care about other people's well being in terms of um, you know how how much sugar they eat, how much fat they intake. It seems to me that it is just a sort of obsession of the sort of North London <laughs> liberal elite. And it's so you're not... turning it into like a political culture war. Where I it's think the... it is. No, it's not. Some people just have different opinions. I'm... The thing is, I have a huge amount of sympathy with what you said, and I'll probably agree with you more than but this that's interesting. conversation gives the impression because I'm playing devil's advocate. You know, I, but yeah. still, not everything is a war between, you know, the left and the right, the, Liber- the Adam Smith Institute and the North London Quango elite or whatever. Is it not? No, of no. course <laughs> not, because politics exists. No, no, no. No, I think... I, no, no, I, in, the, I think... In, in opinions and conversations around the country, it's not about paid lobbyists and all the rest of it. This is just about what people think. Yeah, no, sorry. No, no I, I think you're right, yeah. I, I think probably some people do have the same opinions that the Quangos have. And that's what they're and some sort people of, will share your opinions. And yeah. they, they may have never heard of the Adam Smith Institute, but they just believe in individual liberty, and they yeah. get that opinion from themselves or from their life experiences or, or whatever. But then why? But then mm. just as there are plenty of people out there who look at their neighbours and go, "Bloody hell, everyone's getting fat and dying young," and uh, maybe someone should do something about it. Yeah, you know, and and I think we all, I certainly, in terms of my own politics. Constantly reassessing how much of a libertarian or otherwise I am, and I agree with a lot of what you say. But I just think some people just disagree, and they're not all they're not all in North London and um, being paid by Public Health England. Let's talk about some other things okay. that the Adam Smith Institute does. So, um, one of the, one of your big policies at the moment is on micro homes. Yeah. Um, so basically, with the with the housing situation, we in in particularly in London, uh, there's not enough there's not enough houses. Um, there's lots of land we could build on, but we're not allowed to build on it. Um, and there's lots of buildings that are very, very we're very low low density in London. So the idea between all of in all of our housing policies is just that if you had it's very basic supply and demand. If you have more houses, the prices uh, go down. If you increase the supply, uh, the, the yep. price goes down. What the current policies that the Tory party seem to be pushing as things like help to buy, which sound great. You think, oh, they're helping me to buy a house. But that actually just increases demand and therefore increases the price. So it doesn't... So basically, what's happening at the moment is, and one of the reasons why this is so important is because this is the reason why you have lots of homelessness, um, is, you know, having a roof over your house is one of the, the most in, important things in life. A roof over your house is essential. What did I... Oh, sorry. <laughs> didn't know if I said <laughs> house over roof. <laughs> no, I think it meant roof over your head, but uh, no, I think that's, you're that's, absolutely right. Some of these rogue landlords and builders <laughs> really need sorting out. Um, sorry, that's... <laughs> um, that's very important, and we we just need to build more. It's not really any more complicated than that. And with the micro housing, it was just that. So in Japan, they where they've they've had loads of immigration um, into into particularly Tokyo, um, and they've got very very liberal planning laws over there in terms of the size of the house. Um, so basically, if you if you allow particularly young people who sort of like to be in the centre, don't want to be getting a cab back every night to sort of Stockwell or somewhere that's like three miles out, which is where I live. Um, you know, I don't. I never use my lounge. I don't use my garden. 
um, I don't use the other random utility cupboard that I've got in my house. I would actually quite like to live in quite a small room um, in in central London, but you in a small sort of um, apartment in central London. But you can't do that because they're too expensive because they're too big. So if you actually liberalise planning laws, so you could have these sort of like little houses instead, yeah. um, that that would be quite good. So I mean, I looked at the video on that. It sounds great. I looked at the video and very well designed some of the ones that have been done. So mm. they, they do look, you know, they're modern and they're nice. But they are very small. I mean, that's, it's a bed sit really, isn't it? I mean, it's smaller than a bed sit. Sure, yeah. I mean, yeah. They, You'd go they mad are living in there. But, but, the, but you need if, a bit of space. But if people don't, but all I'm saying is, and this is all we ever say, is that if you, if you allow the market to, to build them, and if people don't want to live in them because they are too small, then they won't live in them and they'll die out. But they, but we can't well, currently. The thing is that, them, but, but people thing. don't have the choice at the moment to live in them if they want to. Um, You're I, just giving people an imperfect choice. Aren't you? You're just saying people would probably say, you know what, rather than pay for the no. commute, I'd live there. But there'd be. So what's the alternative? Because they can't live in big. Uh, sure, I would love to live in a massive flat in Chelsea, right? But I can't. Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> But I, we should so, have a whip round. So, so, so would we all? But we can't. We can't do that. Um, and you know, you have to. You, you can't get everything in life you want. But we think that th- this, if you, if you sort of, if you liberalise the planning laws slightly, and you allowed um, companies to build these these uh, these houses that are micro homes, yeah. um, then it gives people a choice. I, my, but my housemate, for example, the reason why we live in Stockwell with a massive garden and a living room and God knows what oh, else, it's because she, it's because she likes it and yeah, she likes the space. I'd rather have central London and no space but it's a, it's a preference it's a choice and you know some people some people go for one or the other but you could basically just bed sets are, are basically they exist it's a studio flat isn't it a, a micro home or is it even smaller than that because the problem is when I hear people talk about it I go that's a great idea mm. so I watched a video on the Adam Smith uh, I think it was a tweet or a, a video on, on the Adam Smith YouTube page I thought this sounds great micro homes and then saw it and thought yeah, I mean, it it's not. Small. It's not big. It's not. Big. It's a hotel room, is it? You'd end up going bonkers in there. After you, you might, but it, it doesn't sound like it's for you, Matt. It's so. not. It's not. But I wish it was because it's good. Like new ideas and things. You, I, I always want to get in, on board with them because you go, "Well, this is good. Someone's thinking about this differently." And when you hear, when I hear you talk about it, I think it's great. And then I watch the video and thought, yeah. "Well, it's you know, crackers. Don't... It's like a prison cell, but a very well designed one." It, yeah, they are very nice. Very well designed. Um, so, it must be a question you get asked a lot, and I see the Taxpayers Alliance get asked it a lot. Oh, God, oh, God, OK. Is, who, who funds, funds you? you? So, who does fund the Adam Smith Institute? So, it's a combination of uh, sort of rich, white, old men um, and the odd company. Um, Is, does that mean um, a small amount of companies or companies that are odd? No, sorry. <laughs> um, a, a small amount of companies. A lot but of joke people, shops. But people do always ask us on this, and I, and I, my when my so my housemate she she works she's an accountant so she always asks me about this and she's like yeah I when I when you first started there I did think it was a bit weird like you know do you just come out with stuff that people give you money for, uh, and it's not true we we sort of we all think what we think, and then we go out and say it and yes. our line is always, so we never take money for a particular report. Um, it's just sort of like, look, we're fighting the good fight for liberalism. If like we have, we like we have to earn money, um, so when we need money to keep us going and to pay our rent. So if you if you can give us some money, that would be great. That's that's basically what it is, so and it's not any. And people like people always portray it like this sort of dark, crazy world. Dark money, but it's but it's really not. It's just a bunch of nerdy blokes. And who are and they? Me. Are they are they what? Are they lords? Are they XMPs? Are they captains of industry? Um, it's kind of like a mixture of all of them, really. I think yeah. I think we've got one female donor. <laughs> That's good. But do you, do you publish who these people are, or do you? Is that not the done thing? No, it's not the done thing. And I think I think the reason why we don't is because then if. Because we sort of think that's the individual's privacy, and that you know some people, you know, if you if you work in an office that isn't in politics, and then this we release who funds who funds us, and then you know this bloke who you know was keeping it from everyone that he was a neoliberal yeah. gets found out. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, no, but I don't know. So I think so. That's probably why we don't. That's that's probably why we don't. Um, but isn't it also, you know, I remember David Cameron saying that lobbying was going to be the next big scandal in, in Parliament. If if you've got access to, to special advisors and government ministers 
Doesn't the public have a right to know where your money's coming from? Hmm. I mean, yeah, I, I don't like. I think that's prob- that's probably a strong argument. But the reason why I think that, I mean, I, I think they do, they 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 might have a right to. But the reason why we don't um, don't publish them is because in my heart of hearts, I know that the stuff that we go and lobby for is because we really believe in it, and that comes first. And as long as that comes first. Like if the if the social I don't know if some sort of lefty quango decided to give us money right those North London elites and said right you've got to stop you've got to stop banging on about the about us right yeah. we take the money we yeah. still keep banging on about it yeah so so my my question to to anyone that sort of always quizzes us on this that sort of come from these sort of charities or like whatever the Guardian journalists or whatever is give us your money and see and see what we do with it because yeah. we're we're still <laughs> we're still going to keep saying the same things but we have to we have to run like we have to pay our wages and we have yeah. to pay our rent um you've got central London headquarters I mean it can't be a cheap thing to run no I don't I don't get involved in the finances I'm I'm I think fundraising must be one of the hardest things in any in any profession. Oh God, getting I know. money out of other people to keep a a, a, yeah. a a thing afloat must be so hard. Yeah, it's, 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 it's not my bag. I prefer sort of selling selling our policies to MPs instead. I like doing that. But I but I but I told you the um like the organ donation thing that we have, which is one of our policies. I don't believe in that. So because I I just think. I, I, I just you know, and even though you know people are dying in the UK because of um, because they don't they they can't get the kidney transplants, I don't think we should sort of make that a market and pay people for giving up their kidneys. I don't think I don't think that's the kind of world I want to live in. So I personally won't argue for that. So you say I can't do this kidney stuff. Get someone else to do the PowerPoint presentation on. Yeah, but because we have so we, there's only there's only actually five full time employees at the Adam Smith Institute, so it's quite small, and I don't think anyone else would have the time, so it would just sort of come off the agenda. And it's the same line that I take on the NHS is that it's I'll talk about it with everyone, but I'll never set up a meeting and say like you need to look at these policies. But so I don't know. So it's, it's all about it's, it's we do we do practice what we preach in the sense that it's like it is it is about your independence and it is about your. Um, your own beliefs and that no one in the office is going to force me to to go in and say something that's why none of us we so on brexit as as i mentioned earlier we all sort of talk about it openly on the media and we all have our own lines but i think on one day three of us went on i said we i back the deal uh, our intern said no no deal and then someone else was like oh yeah we should remain so wow. we ha- we have no line on it um and because actually we just say what we think and i think as long as it's like that then that that's a good thing but, but that obviously works to an extent doesn't it on 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 certain issues you'd want uh, you know if you're presenting research as the the view of the sorry institute. sorry sorry but yeah but the sorry the, the point with the brexit the, the point i was making with the brexit thing is we, we all have our own minds and that yeah. we always we do go on representing the adam smith institute but we are it's still kind of us but and on brexit it, we've sort of made a collective decision to just say right everyone can have their own opinions on this oh that's good but yeah but it but on something like and, and but we deviate with things like the gender pay gap i obviously i deviate slightly to the boys on that um, and you know, on on each issue, How strange. we deviate. We do we do deviate slightly, um, but as long our sort of core principles are all the same. Yes. And so the reasons why the, with the, we get into a tears with the Brexit thing is because we do have all the same core principles, but we come up with a different outcome. Well, that's so that's politics for you. Now, I've always I've always had a a soft spot for the Adam Smith Institute. I went to when I first started working in politics. I went to a few of, mm-hmm. used to do a thing called the Next Generation, where if you were young and you worked in politics, you get invited to these. Canapes and wine yeah. events. I was asked. Well, I was reading. Uh, before I, used this to, in- I went to two, and I loved them. And well, I thought it was a really good idea. I was reading the, the 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 book on the Adam Smith Institute before this interview, so I could sort of do a bit of history prep. And I was reading about this. You used to get canapes, and um, Madsen, our founder, used to choose the sort of wine of the month. We don't we don't get that anymore. So I'm going to ask for. I mean, it's ruined on me. I'm I'll, I'll a drinking <laughs> moron from the provinces. But um, I remember going to one with Sir Edward Lee. And I, okay. I just think it's good to have think tanks that are provocative and different. And um, we're provocative, but we're regardless pro- of wing. But we're provocative with, uh, but we want to make a difference, and we do care about the outcome. I don't think we're like, oh, you've got that awful bloke Milo Yiannopoulos or whatever his name yeah. is, and he's he's just provocative for the sake of it. Um, but I always think we're we're mis- mischievous. We're mischievous. Um, but we we sort of want it's for an end. It's for an outcome, and I think that's I think that I think that's important. Sophie Jarvis, it's been an absolute pleasure having you here. Thank you very much.
There you go, Sophie Jarvis from the Adam Smith Institute. Just so much fun uh, sitting down and talking politics with people, uh, particularly when people have provocative ideas or different ideas, and even talking about the NHS. And Sophie's absolutely right, it's a real sacred cow, uh, and obviously for a number of reasons... But it is interesting to at least theoretically entertain the idea that we could do things differently. So if for no other reason, then it's just always good to go away thinking, you know, we should always challenge um, received wisdom. We should always think of new ideas that you can improve people's lives and improve public services and improve the world in which we live. Um, And uh, it's just great because I now am going to go away uh, and think about the NHS a bit more in the sense that... um, you know, should we be entirely wedded to it, to it the, the way it is? I mean, I, I probably am almost certainly entirely wedded to it the way... The, not in the sense that it's not perfect, because obviously it does have imperfections, as any system does. But, um, yeah, it's just worth it's worth going away, isn't it, for the evening at least, and, and just thinking about that, or, or, or maybe a bit longer. So uh, Sophie was superb. It was a pleasure to have her here. Got so many great guests lined up. So for the live shows, David Blunkett at the end of January, Johnny Mercer at the end of February. I can't wait. Johnny Mercer has become a far more prominent Conservative MP. He was famously in, a, I think, a shampoo advert. Was it a Dove advert? Um, strapping fella, uh, ex-forces, um Really interesting bloke, really funny bloke, uh, and I've got some very exciting guests to announce uh, for the rest of the year as well. As I said at the start of the show, I am on tour, and will not shut up about it until you buy tickets, which you can get from uh, the website mattford.com slash live. And as I'm doing the other palace uh, on Monday the 28th of January, that's selling very well. Uh, um... Salford has already sold out. I'm doing three more nights in London, a few more to be added, uh, but the tour will go to Camberley, Gloucester, uh, Salford, Maidstone, Leicester, Northallerton, Darlington, Barnard Castle, Hexham, Stourbridge, Stafford, Cambridge Junction, uh, Corby, Bristol, uh, Faversham, Aberystwyth, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Newcastle and Chorley, with I think a few more to be added as well. So, um, if you're waiting for me to come to a town near you, maybe just come to the one that is the nearest on that tour, because who knows? But I think I'm adding some London dates as well, which is all very exciting indeed, as we hurtle towards the 29th of March, or indeed later. Who knows what on earth is going to happen? Um, it's a pleasure to be back doing these weekly shows. Thank you for all your wonderful emails. Do email the show, uh, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com, and it could be with any sort of feedback or suggestion at all. William Turrell said, have you ever thought about asking Rory Stewart on? I would love to have Rory Stewart on. And we'll approach him in due course now that he's become a star uh, of Question Time on other shows uh, um, as well. Matt Haig um, says, Dear Matt, I just wanted to thank you for all the time and effort you put into the podcast. Matt, it is a pleasure doing it, uh, and I'm delighted uh, that you enjoy doing it. Um, so he's uh, suggested some Lib Dems that could come on, Layla Moran and Joe Swinson. Matt, I would love to have either one of them on, uh, and I will be in touch with you as well. Um Obviously, I had a lot of emails about the um, Christmas specials, particularly the Adam Bolton uh, and Alistair Campbell one as well. If you haven't listened to it yet, well, it speaks for itself. I don't think words can do justice to what happened there on that fateful night. Um, But yes, email the show, subscribe. Um, If you could leave an iTunes review, it just helps other people find it and helps keep the podcast up uh, high in the rankings. And tell your friends about it. Try and get someone else into it. That is uh, that is all I ask on behalf of doing it. So um, a belated proper Happy New Year now that we're back into the swing of things. I hope you're enjoying 2019 and I hope to see you on tour. And as always, thanks for downloading. And this goodbye has gone on long enough, so I shall bring it to an end. Ta-ra! Ta-ra!